All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner joined by Rich Hoffman on this week's Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. How you doing, Rich? We made it to the break, man. It's we here. made it to the break. Sixers sitting here at 37-21, and 3-1 and one in the Tobias Harris era. And what's that the best record since? They are at 37-21. and 21. It is their best record, I think, at the All-Star break since 1984-85. 1984-85. And yet you've still got people on the ringer. Ringer? Ringer. Debating whether or not the process worked. You've got Sixers fans debating whether or not Brett Brown should be fired after every loss. Both arguments are pretty ridiculous. But for a team that is winning, really winning consistently, there is one game that stands above them all. And that is the one that will get the most of the tension here over this next week-long break, deservedly or not. But they are the most talented team since I've been following them. And I was, we don't need to get too deep into how old I am, but you know, I I would not have remembered that team that you mentioned. And they have the most realistic chance of winning an NBA title. Not a good chance, by the way. The Golden State Warriors still exist. But that 2000-2001 team, as much as exciting as they were, that was not a championship caliber team. This team has the chance of developing into that kind of a team. And yet it just feels like there is so much angst and so much worry and so much concern trolling from everyone, from Sixers fans from some on the outside, although I think the outside, the national media is almost higher on this team right now than Philadelphia is entirely because of that Boston game. How much of that concern do you think is warranted, Rich? It's hard to say, man. I mean, it that's that kind of surprised me a little bit, just considering all of the angst and all of the hand-wringing surrounding this team. The And Brett Brown has kind of said this over the past couple of days. I feel like he's coached three teams this year. So it's amazing that they're 37 and 21 with three different iterations of the Sixers. I mean, you have, you know, the team they started with this year when they were freaking, <laughs> they were starting Markel Fultz in, in the first half and JJ Redick in the second half and Coven and Dario were still here. And then you have when Jimmy showed up and, you know, things were, Things were different. And then you have the team of the past four games. Not a huge sample. With uh, Tobias and Boban and Mike Scott and James Ennis and now Johnny Simmons and all, all these different faces. So I don't, it, you know, they are 37 and 21 and that's a very good record. And like you said, they have a higher ceiling than they've had in a long time. But I also don't know what to make of this team Considering, you know, this group is only three and one, and that's pretty good considering they played three pretty good teams and they didn't have any plays. Like they don't, they clearly don't have any familiarity playing with each other. But they also did lose to Boston, which, you know, I guess we'll talk about a lot, but that's obviously old news with this team. So, yeah, I, I don't really know totally what to make of these guys the uh the loss to boston though did feel even with the new guys it felt like it was a familiar script yeah the do you think it's fair to say that the celtics are in their head a little bit 
Sure. Yes, yeah. I think that is fair to say. Um, it's so it's 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 you know I think a lot of so I think first of all, offensively they were not perfect, but I think they probably executed. That was one of their better executed games against the Celtics, especially in the second half in a while. I think right now we're the biggest, and you mentioned the offensive sets. And, you know, they kind of, they're playing offense right now. You, you talk about a lack of familiarity. They play offense like we podcast, and that's not great. You don't want that. And I don't know <laughs> what our excuse is because we've been doing this for like four years now, but that, that's the way they're playing offense. And that'll get better. Like that, that is a very natural byproduct of a team that has been together for literally a week. Um, you know, I think it's pretty encouraging what they've been able to do just on their natural talent and the way their skill sets mesh. Yeah. I think Tobias Harris has shown more than you would have expected. Like, I think if you haven't watched Tobias Harris in the last 12 months, you're probably surprised. He's he's really comfortable and natural now off the pick and roll when he came out of Tennessee. That was not part of his game at all. That's a, that's a good skill set to have. Uh, even if Brett isn't as big of a pick and roll user, user as other coaches, I do think they have put him in those situations already. I think that adjustment has happened almost quicker than it did for for Butler, uh, and we can get into that later. But I think overall, you can put the bias in sort of a spot-up, attack-closeout, push-and-transition kind of role when he's with the starting lineup. You can ask him to do more when he's maybe sharing the court with one other of your stars. But in order to really maximize the skill set of what they have, it's going to take it's going to take a little bit more time. And I think the bigger issue right now is actually defensively. For as much as we'll talk about offensive fits, I don't think their defensive performance has been up to par quite yet. I think that is just as big of an adjustment period. You know, we talk about, I think we assume that all scheme is offensive scheme and defense is just effort, which is patently absurd, but it's a way it's discussed a lot in sports. And I think that they their communication isn't quite there yet either. And I think that's where they really look like they've only been, you know, offensively, they look like they've been together a week because they just don't do as much as you would expect them to do in terms of, you know, different types of offensive sets. Defensively, it's, I think they look like they've only been together for a week because there's just not that level of trust and communication and, and knowledge of what each one is going to do. And I think that's probably where the biggest gains will come here over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, defensively is where they lost that game in the second half. The uh, we, we were talking about this last night at uh, Madison Square Garden when we were watching a game that I don't think really needs a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of explanation. I think the highlight of the night, uh, in a scary and I oh guess somewhat God, fun way, her. was Jill Owen Bede almost killing uh, famous actress Regina King, and him afterwards saying, "Well, I could jump higher if I wanted to." Uh, he, uh, the difference in Embiid post game, by the way, after a win and loss is like, it's unbelievable. Uh, how much of a better mood he is after wins and losses. I, you would think like after three years, he would hopefully, you know, kind of try and keep things even keel. Don't get too high after a win. Don't get too low after a loss. He was, uh, he was fine uh, recalling his, uh, his kamikaze foray into the first row there. And thank God for that guy. Uh, good, good for him Con- going right back to work afterwards. Uh, we were saying, though, while watching that game, Tobias Harris kind of looks like a more efficient Carmelo 
with his mannerisms. He just, you know, quick jab step, jump shot. And I, I think, you know, when I mentioned that they don't run a lot of plays, that's a good sign in that they don't need to run a lot of plays. That's the way you want to play. You you want, you know, your players just playing off each other and, and just figuring out organically, you know, how to score. And, and I think that is definitely a good sign. The uh, the defense was pretty interesting because the Celtics, they did not have Kyrie Irving in that game. And I know a lot of the talk afterwards is, are the Celtics better uh, without Kyrie? And, and maybe they have more of these tough physical players and there's no mismatch for the Sixers to attack on the other end of the floor. And that, look, I, I don't know the answer to that stuff, but that, uh, there could be some of that. All I know is that with the group the Celtics had, they attacked J.J. Redick and T.J. McConnell to an extent in a way that was just ruthless. I mean, Brad Stevens, basically this the, the game was kind of lost, I thought, when Brown played uh, McConnell and Redick together for a few minutes, and that meant Redick had to guard Jalen Brown. That didn't work. And... You know, later in the game, it turned into Redick would guard Marcus Smart. And I thought it was like interesting afterwards. Brett was like, Yeah, I thought we kind of overreacted to those Marcus Smart post ups. And that's, you know, that's something that I think has some merit. Like, it, it, if Marcus Smart posts JJ Redick up, he could get him in foul trouble and, and there could be a lot of trouble for the Sixers. But if you're the Celtics, do you really want to try and like play through Marcus Smart if the Sixers don't overreact? Is he going to just score right. 60 points? I'm not sure he's going to do that. And it's kind of almost like what you do, what the Celtics do with Embiid in that they let Horford play one-on-one against them and they try and take away all of the other passes and outlets and things that come from an Embiid post-up. But yeah, that was my big takeaway is that uh, Redick got hunted pretty hard in a way that I don't think is often going to happen. I don't think it's always going to be like a post up. I think a lot of times it'll just kind of be an ISO or a pick and roll. But that's why that's how the Celtics won the game because the Sixers couldn't stop them in the second half. And you know, in addition to some other things like the Horford pick and pop remains just the Sixers have no idea what to do with that. But yeah, they they kind of just overreacted to a lot of the things the Celtics did, and that's that's where they need to get better. Yeah, going back to your point about. Um, overreacting to Marcus Smart. You know, Marcus Smart was 2-for-7 when defended against J.J. Redick. He was 0-for-2 when defended against T.J. McConnell, or when defended by T.J. McConnell. And uh, based on how the Sixers' defensive schemes went around that, you know, I think you would have expected him to have a lot of success. And he really didn't. Like that, like Brett said, they overreacted, forced rotations, and the, the Celtics picked them apart. And... You know, this is something where we saw Butler, them experiment with Butler at the point guard. I think this is a situation where you almost have to try it again because you have more wing depth. You have some, you know, theoretical three and D wings that you can put around him and James Ennis. And you can't, you just, it, that lineup with those two defenders is going to be exploited. Like Brad Stevens is going to go to that. Like that's what, that's the style of basketball Boston plays. That's the style they will always play. You can't take J.J. Redick off. Like, pe- people want to bench J.J. Redick. You can't do it. He's can't too important that. to the offense. Um, that would, to talk about an overreaction, that would that, that would be a huge net negative. I think the response there is, and it's, it's tough because T.J. 
kind of won them the game. The one game they won against Boston in the playoffs last year, theoretically could have swung the series. Like he was a much needed second ball handler that they have. And I think that's really what it, it what like it gave him another ball handler to help Simmons out and let them, you know, push the tempo in transition. But I don't think that means that you have to be tied to TJ McConnell against the Boston Celtics. Like I think getting Tobias Harris, I think getting Jimmy Butler will help arrest some of those problems. And I do think you're going to have to change your lineups. And I wonder how much, you know, there was that, there was the Boban, you know, pick and roll struggles. And I wonder what the, the rotations are going to look like the next time they play. You know, Brown has been pretty open that right now he wants to play Boban, kind of see what kind of opponents he can play him against, see what kind of lineups he can use him in and figure out what he has in his, his, his new player. And that's fine, but Boban's not going to work against Al Horford. That's just not, if Aaron Baines comes back and they play him, okay, you can put, you can put Boban in some of those lineups. He's not going to be able to defend in space. It's a pretty predictable outcome that they had and experiment now, but maybe that, you know, mid to late March game they have against the Celtics, maybe try to get your rotations a little under order then. And then in the playoff series, really be ready to go. And if he makes these same kind of, you know, putting Korkmaz out there, putting McConnell out there alongside of uh, Redick, putting Boban as backup center, then I think my criticism will be much stronger because I think those are, are pretty clear mistakes. I also think that March game, it'd be really nice to win that, just that so you know, like, okay, we can beat these guys because, God, the, the frustration level after that game, Embiid was still dropping F-bombs about how pissed off he was about the Celtics loss last night you know after they won they uh I, I also think just in general too like we talk a lot here about skill sets and how players fit and advanced stats and all of these things that you know we think are important and you know lineup decisions things that are important in terms of winning a game they just need to be tougher against these guys though I, yep. You watch that first quarter, it, they did not come out with a level of, of focus and it just they weren't ready to play against a team that pushes them around. And the Celtics are physical and they're, they swipe at, at the ball. And I just didn't think, you know, I didn't think Harris really matched that level of physicality against Marcus Morris. I, Embiid, I, I have no idea what Horford does, but it's unbelievable how much better he is at guarding him than pretty much anybody else in the league. It's yeah it, that, that first possession where Embiid, it, not the first possession, but you know, a couple minutes in the game where Embiid backed Horford down and it took him about, I don't know, like six or seven dribbles to get all the way to the rim. He got blocked uh, and it was called a foul on Horford. It really wasn't a foul to be honest. And, and then Horford gets a T for going crazy. Like, just, it's unbelievable how much stronger is Horford than, than, is than a lot of these guys. Because against most players, Embiid takes two or three dribbles, and he's at the rim. Like, he's knocking these guys back because he's so much bigger. Horford, for some reason, can just kind of stand his ground. And it's it's impressive. I, I will say the uh, the officiating was strange the entire night. Embiid clearly got fouled at the end of the game, which would have knocked Horford out. Yeah, both and both given him that, a chance. To- um, both that Embiid foul and then also um, the travel on Ben were just huge calls that I didn't get at all, and really 
could have swung the game, either one of those. So they were, officiating was definitely questionable. It was questionable. I I thought Embiid could have gotten an N1 too on Horford that he went nuts on um, as well. But like, as much as we're going to talk about those calls and those calls were not good, that's not why they lost. No, they, they they were outplayed the entire game. The Celtics kind of dictated the the pace. They they had the Sixers just rotating like crazy, which they don't want to be in on defense. It and they just they just played better. So in a way, I think it's good because the Sixers were able to make that a close game despite not playing well for a lot of it. They uh, they did pick up the pace a little bit in the second half. They're going to need to get more stops though because it's really hard to score against the Celtics in the half court. And, and that's where they can, they can kind of take over, but yeah, it was a, uh, it was certainly a frustrating loss, but I think like, uh, like Brett said last night, like luckily, you know, the NBA, there's not too much time to dwell on these losses, but I I think moving forward, you know, these, I, I looked at the, uh, the remaining schedules of all the Eastern conference contenders, the good news for the Sixers is that, uh, and this is on Tankathon, they have the 20th toughest schedule in the league. Yep. Moving in. So not too bad. No, and there's Boston a, a four-game in- stretch at the end of the month, which probably compromises almost all of that. Like, there is, I would guess, after March 2nd or so when they play the Warriors, I would guess they have, if not the easiest, one of the easiest schedules in the NBA. Boston and Indiana are top eight tough schedules, too. The teams, they're kind of battling for the third seed. So that's good. Um yep. So so while they are kind of trying to experiment and figure out the right rotations and and get the get the players to to match up and, and be on the same page. I mean they they were experimenting with different rotations last night. They weirdly took Ben out with Joel and kind of had a Harris Butler lineup with the with the bench mob who played well against the the putrid New York Knicks. But uh yeah, while they while they try and figure all this stuff out I, I do think they need to be looking at like how can we beat Boston? How you know, how can we match up against the Torontos and Milwaukee's of the world? Because they're not outside of I think they're playing Milwaukee a few times, uh, but outside of a, a couple of games, it's it's a pretty easy schedule coming in. Yeah. No, it was interesting. So I guess one you you briefly touched on this, but one of the big issues with the Celtics, you know, I think they forced what, like six turnovers for a total of two points off of turnovers. That is not, I mean, it, it lately is Sixers basketball. That is not the way they want to play. They want to get out there, get easy buckets, get in transition. And this team, first of all, the Sixers do not force turnovers at a high rate. And as great as Simmons is at converting transition opportunities into points, the Sixers do not generate enough of them. And part of that is you know, what has been a very weak perimeter defense through much of the season. You wonder whether or not some of these additions can help reverse that a little bit, but they once again, didn't do that against Boston. Who's one of the best teams in the league at taking care of the basketball. And when Boston is, you know, when you have to score on Boston, really the entire game, again, once again, two points off of turnovers, when you are left having to, you know, execute against a team that is that good, it's it's difficult. It's difficult for any team in a league. Like there's a reason Boston is that I think they were the number two half court defense in the entire NBA. And the Sixers dropped, and this is according to Cleaning Glass, the Sixers dropped 107.1 or 107.3 points per 100 possessions 
in the half court against Boston in that game. They actually outscored Boston on a per-possession basis in the half court. So I think if you were to look at that and said the Sixers out-executed the Celtics in the half court, I don't think many people would believe it. But it was true. Like, what has been their boogeyman a lot has been they cannot score in the half court. And that, by the way, was with Joel Embiid having one of his worst games. Uh, with, you know, Tobias Harris having an off night over six from three-point range. They still but- found ways to execute more or less in the half court. It helps to have five guys who can score. It it does. Two of them have a good game and you have a chance. What they didn't do is, first of all, you've got Ben Simmons going two for seven from the free throw line. It's a completely different game if he makes one or two of them. You know, at one point it was, I think, I forget exactly when, but it was like a one-point game when they really started. I think one-point game was 16 seconds left, something in that range when they had to start fouling. And then you had Jimmy Butler missing two or three at the end. He was 7 for 10 from the game, so it wasn't a bad performance, but that that killed him. You had some missed open shots. Joel Embiid doesn't see Tobias Harris in the corner after the offensive rebound. Those questionable calls. Like, fan base wants to lose their minds after every loss like this, and I get it. They're 1-7 against these teams. But you get a lot of reactions like, oh, this is proof they can't win in the playoffs. Well, they did just beat Golden State. Golden State is proof that they can compete against high-level teams, against high-level defenses. They might have to figure out the Boston Celtics, and they've only now played one game with their full arsenal, and we'll see whether they can. But but don't not, no blanket statements like they can't beat a good team, they can't beat a good defense. I think they've played one game against Toronto, and that was, you know, before the Harris... Was that before Harris? I'm completely... Bl- yeah, that was before the Harris acquisition, so they haven't played... Toronto yet with this new team and I get that as fans we remember all of the previous games as well but this is a pretty major addition and it's just what I went back to in my column you know it was Pacers beat the Sixers Allen Iverson Larry Brown and the Sixers two years in a row four nothing and four to two in the playoffs ended their season twice in a row and I just think if that happened now can you imagine like can you imagine that happening happening in the social media era and it's just this there tends to be a coming of age for really good teams. You know the Golden State Warriors. I think they won one playoff series in their first two years in the playoffs. They had they had to learn how to beat the um, San Antonio Spurs. AI and Larry Brown had to learn how to beat the Indiana Pacers. And Just because the Sixers and and they, and they did and they made a run of the NBA Finals and the rest didn't exactly work out well. But you know some questionable. We don't have to relitigate the the Kemi Matumbo trade, but you know that wasn't a team built as well as this one is. So, I guess what I would just say is give them time, give them time to grow. Like just because right now that Boston Celtics have their number, and I think they do. I think yeah, they're they in their head a little do. bit. <laughs> yeah. Teams grow, players grow, coaches grow, star players grow, rosters grow, rosters change. Like that was a data point. And they didn't pull out enough plays at the end to win it. But they played pretty well against a pretty good team. Let's see what happens in the next data point. Let's see what happens in the playoffs. Like I, I think this is a very talented team. And I don't think that loss washes away what they did in the previous 11 games, which was really legitimately impressive. Yeah, I mean, the more the more points you made about how close they were and, and all of the areas, big and small, they can improve – it does go to show that they were really close to winning that game, and there there are a ton of things they can just clean up and, and do a little better. And also, the I think the acknowledgement that Boston might be in their head a little bit it, it also goes to show that 
I think most people think the Sixers have more talent than Boston, which is certainly the starting position I would uh, I would want to be in. But yeah, they're yeah. they're gonna have to get it done at some point. And uh, look, Embiid Embiid is really gonna have to figure out Horford. By the way, he is. that is you can't. I mean, the Sixers rely on Embiid for a lot, and you can't have your best is, player outplayed by Al Horford for three quarters. You can't do it. I thought Mike said it well on Twitter yesterday. Like, for all of the fire Brett Brown stuff and the rotations, I didn't think were great yesterday. Although he made it clear that he was experimenting at this point. Uh, so, you know, whether it was wise to experiment against the Celtics, I I think it's fine. Whatever, whether you want to talk about how they guard Ben Simmons or or not, whatever. The Sixers have the best record at the All Star break that they've had as a franchise in. 30 years because Joel Embiid is a monster on both sides of the court. When he gets outplayed badly, like it was decisively Horford for three quarters. And then Embiid made it closer with a, with a really good stretch because he's that good. But when he's getting his butt kicked for three quarters of the game, it's going to be hard for them to win. Yep. They need him to play better. I guess Horford. Really I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what, the, what they do. I mean, offensively like it's just single coverage you can hear brad stevens yelling from the sideline by yourself al by yourself and it's like joe you just got to score on him i don't know you know whether it's more face-up moves or or whatever i know a lot of people got mad at him for shooting eight threes but yeah he's just got to play better against al it's really weird for a long time for pretty much the entirety of my sports fandom i always thought people were too hard on star players and by, by that, I mean, like, there would be deficiencies in the supporting cast and narratives would come out like, oh, LeBron can't win in the playoffs. LeBron can't win an MVP. LeBron's never going to take his team to blah, blah, blah. And by the way, these never going to happen things tend to look goddamn foolish. They'll never beat the Celtics. Yeah, OK, well, they haven't figured out the Celtics yet. I'm not going to say they'll, they're never going to beat them. But for a long time, people would overreact to stars because of the deficiency of the team around them. Even if even if LeBron was averaging 30, 10, and 10, if he didn't win the playoffs, it was his fault. Now it's almost like with the Sixers, you can't hold Joel accountable. Let's go to the rotations. Let's go to the, let's go to Brett Brown. He can't, you know, it's Brett's fault that Ben Simmons went two for seven from the free throw line. At some point, there just needs to be a little bit of personal accountability with the stars as well. And I think Joel Embiid has to play better against Al Horford. And part of that's going to be, you know, Brett helping him figure out the Al Horford dilemma. Part of it's going to be, I mean, Joel said it himself. He sleptwalked through the first three quarters. That can't happen. He not has a good to play ex- better. Not a good explanation, a, man. Like, you got to bring it against no, the No, it's Celtics. not. You do. And Ben Simmons has got to make those free throws. He's just, he can't go two for seven in a tight game like that. It can't. And look, he played better than he's played against the Celtics a lot. Didn't play great. It wasn't his, his best game, but he played better. He's He's got to make those free throws. You can't be giving away points like that. And... That doesn't mean there's no criticism for the coach. Like uh, the rotations, uh, and I'm not a hashtag rotations guy, but I, those would not be the rotations I would use. I think I think those rotations directly cost them points. And I do think there's something to experimenting against the Celtics. Like people said, we'll experiment against the, the, the Knicks. Well, no, like you, me, James Ennis, and Joel Embiid could go out there and, and, <laughs> and things would work against the Knicks. It doesn't mean it's a good data point. So I think it makes sense to experiment against a team that you're going, you have a, a decent chance of playing in the playoffs. But if those are the rotations that they end up going with when it matters, I will. Yes, those were bad. I think they they did not put the team in a position to 
to to succeed. But Joel's got to play better. Ben's got to make those. JJ Redick tends to really struggle against that team. Tobias Harris can't go 0 for 6. And look, it's gonna it's gonna happen for shooters. It's the first time it happened to Harris all year. I, I looked it up. He'd never taken four or more three pointers um, without making at least one of them. Like that was probably his worst shooting game of the season. But they have to execute better. And and I think you know in a close game like that, it really that lack of execution can really can really shine through. Weird Simmons game in that efficient from the field, seven of nine, obviously missed those free throws, had, you know, five assists, but in a lot of ways, his games against the Celtics, he was actively harming the Sixers in ways with turnovers and just, just not scoring and not putting his imprint on the game. I don't think, I mean, he did a nice job of cleaning the mistakes up, but I don't think he imposed his will in a way that he does when he's like at his absolute best. So, and maybe no. like, honestly, maybe that's what you're going to get at this point without the jump shot from him. And, and like you said, you know, if, if two of your starters have really good games and Embiid plays a little better, you're probably, and you get that performance from Simmons. I, I think you're probably going to win a seven game series against these guys, uh, you know, and Brett makes the rotations, but yeah, the, uh, and just to your point on Embiid and star players, like I, I do think for the most part, this is a player's league. That's kind of, I know that's a cliche, but that's also kind of the way me and you look at this in that when the Sixers are winning a bunch of games in a row, we're not like, man, Brett Brown is killing it with these rotations and and things like that. It's like, he he wasn't a better coach when they won against the Warriors and he wasn't a worse coach when he he lost against the Celtics. Right. And, And they do look what they do matters at the margins to an extent, like the rotations and, we will be the first people to criticize him if he's playing Furk and Korkmaz in the playoffs. <laughs> right. uh, that's that's fair. But, I mean, the reason the Sixers are good is because Embiid and Simmons and Butler and Reddick kill people. And when when Embiid in particular is struggling, I think that's the first place to, to look at as, you know, he's got to play better against, uh, against the Celtics. So, man, what a... Uh, what do you think about Boban specifically when right, it comes to well, 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 let's get to the bench players and some of the other new acquisitions in a second. Before that, a quick word from this week's sponsor, betonline.ag. The NBA regular season might be taking a break, but online sports betting is still alive and well. And there's only one place to get in on all of this action, betonline.ag. Sports, casino, virtual casino, you name it, betonline.ag is the Sixers Beat and CLNS Media's preferred sportsbook online, and they're offering a 50% sign-up bonus if you use the promo code CLNS50. All-Star Weekend provides plenty of opportunity to get in on the action. Whether it's a Rising Star Challenge or the All-Star Game that you want to place a bet on, you don't want to be left on the sidelines. Go where the action is at betonline.ag. Once again, CLNS Media and BetOnline are offering you a 50% sign-up bonus if you use our code CLNS50. 50 with your first deposit. Go to clnsmedia.com slash win. Once again, that's clnsmedia.com slash win. Use the promo code CLNS50 for your 50% sign-up bonus today. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. All right, so Boban, uh, were you talking about overall or against the Celtics? Just when do you think it is the right spots so, to play him? Because I will say, I last, last you night... you phrase this... Yeah, go ahead. Last night, 
it was an honor to watch that guy play and not leave the floor and score. He is. It, doesn't it feel weird criticizing him because I just enjoy oh, him tremendous. so much? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so go ahead. Go say what you're about. To so say. I th- I think the way that you phrased it yesterday at MSG was pretty good. Against bad teams, he's going to be really fun and really effective. Against good teams, it's probably going to be problematic more often than not. And you know, good teams today are teams that can space you out, that can move the ball side to side, that can run, pick, and roll, and create out of that. And in all of those things, Boban's going to struggle. Like, you saw that against the Celtics when he tried to defend Horford. He'd pull him out. He just can't move his feet well enough to do that. Like, he's always going to be at a disadvantage. And he has to drop back so far. And look, he can make up some of that ground with his ridiculous reach. But he's always going to have to drop way back if he wants to have any kind of a prayer to be impactful around the rim, which is really all he brings defensively. And a good team like Boston, especially one with Horford who can shoot from the perimeter and who can make such good decisions with the basketball is always going to cause him problems. It's just, it's, I, 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 again, go ahead, Brett experiment. I don't think you really needed to run that experiment against that team. And I think when this all settles out and I don't know if Brett's going to experiment for a week, for a month, I don't know exactly how this is going to play out. But I think when we're done with this sort of initial getting to know you process, I think I I certainly think Jonah Bolden should be the primary backup against a lot of the good teams and maybe just on a day to day basis. And Boban is a situational guy, which are you 100 percent comfortable with? No, like we, we talked about this before the deadline. Yeah, Bolden's playing really well lately. He's intriguing for being the backup center next year and going forward. But do you want a rookie out there against Boston in the Eastern Conference Finals? No, probably not. Like, that's not 100% ideal, but I think it might be your best. I mean, I think it is your best option for what you have. It's just when when Boban plays against Horford or or a mobile center, even just somebody, a, a more normal backup center, you get into the give trade and the, the give and take of, Okay, he can't guard the person on the perimeter, but you're hoping Boban can score on the guy on the other end. I, I just I'm not comfortable with that give and take for the most part. Even though when Boban if you're, scores, if you're running your offense through Boban, you you're the other team is already winning. Yeah, ex- except when you're playing the Knicks, which <laughs> right. in in which case, please do so, and everybody will enjoy it. But uh, yeah, it's just I, I don't I don't know. It's he he it's. Against the Celtics, he made a hook shot over Horford and then made like four or five plays where he just got beat, Uh, you know, whether it was trying to close out or just just didn't get back on defense in time. It was, uh, yeah, it wasn't great, but uh, I I agree with you. I think Bolden, even though I'm worried about his shooting, I'm worried about his rotations in the playoffs, I I do think he is the... uh, he's going to be the better choice moving forward. And the the one thing I will say about Brett, you know, he had a kind of a weird four game schedule before, uh, before the Sixers take this week long break, they need to get Bolden back playing though. Uh, you know, or, uh, when they come back from the all-star break, because you, you can't put him on ice for too long. You need to keep him somewhat engaged and, yeah. you know, focusing on the things that you're going to want him to do in the playoffs. Cause like you said, they're gonna unless unless they play Simmons at center, which I'm not a huge fan of. They uh, 
they're going to have to rely on that guy a little bit. Yeah, and it would be tough to put him on the bench for a month and then be like, okay, now let's you know let's get back up to playoff speed. Like that that's a real tough ask. You're going to so be I guarding think, Mark Marcusall next week, right? Right. Um, so yeah, I think I think this has to be somewhat abbreviated, or at least maybe alternate who gets the run that day. Like they may be doing, and Corkmaz was out uh, against the Knicks. So, but I would guess Brett's going to keep a ten man rotation, and two of those three wings will play each night, He's, and will probably. He said he wants to go bit. nine. Well, no, in the, in the playoffs. Yeah, I meant I meant I meant for now while he has this what he calls a tournament. Yeah, I think, I think I think yeah, I think how Brett would say is you've you've got to keep Jonah close, and I think I think that is true. Um, so we'll see. And look, Bolden might miss a rotation because of inexperience. He at least has a chance of making the rotation, and Boban just more often than not does not. And again, you almost feel guilty criticizing him because he's so much goddamn fun to watch. Like he'll you'll see Joel with. I think what how Brett initially described him before he ever played a game was Shaq with soccer feet. And you'll see him with these ballerina-type moves to get into position for whatever post-move he wants to make. And then you'll see Boban just, like, clunk around, turn around, and flick the ball at the basket. And nobody can contest it because he's seven foot three and 290 pounds. It's hysterical to watch. The, the no-jumping, flat-footed rebounds I love. He has a little bit of Todd McCullough in him where he just he, he keeps the ball above his head for the putbacks. Like I I love that. But it's 2019, man. Like there there's a reason this dude plays 10 minutes a night and not every night and it's not because the last three places he was at were idiots. It's because it's it's really tough to play an immobile center as entertaining as he is. Todd McCullough was the guy who was really good at pinball, right? Yes. Yes. He was real big on pinball. Became a a, a broadcaster and he entertaining guy, entertaining human being. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think, is there anything else? I mean, I guess they're, they're the wings. There are, I guess Mike Scott's more of a four, but he, uh, he seems like, even though he hasn't really shot the ball that well since coming over, he seems like a pretty seamless fit as the backup four. But then you have James Ennis and Jonathan Simmons in that tournament you were talking about. And I, I think when push comes to shove in the playoffs, those guys are going to be the players who are out there because they give the Sixers the best chance to switch and and play the type of just just generally playoff the style that that is playoff basketball. Um, even though I think it, it remains to be seen how well those guys shoot the ball, but it, it was something I noticed on the rewatch today when they called Simmons with the three and they didn't mention which Simmons it was. You can't do that to the Philadelphia fan base. If you're half paying attention or just listening while you do other chores around the house and you hear you hear Simmons for three, have a minor heart attack. So please specify which Simmons makes a three. I don't think you're going to have to worry about that too much. Uh, I don't trust Jonathan Simmons shot either. Uh, and that's really the reason why he might not get a whole lot of time. But it, it will be interesting to see how those play. Like, I think there have been ups and downs for all three of those guys. I think... Mike Scott is the most secured in his spot in the rotation. I think Ennis is probably ahead of Simmons. I think Simmons shooting is the real wild card. And he has a little bit of that activity achievement in him. But a little activity on the perimeter for a team that doesn't really have a point guard defender or a point of attack defender, like Simmons can be occasionally, isn't the worst thing in the world. 
But it will be, I mean, this is a team that really needs to get their defense locked in. They haven't been for most of the season. And those guys will play a role, even if they are only small role players. It is kind of interesting that Brett has singled out Simmons as a point guard defender. Jonathan Simmons as a point guard defender. By the way, I make that mistake already all the time when I'm taking notes where I'll be like, Simmons did something, and sometimes it'll be Jonathan Simmons, sometimes it'll be Ben. And by the way, I mean, when the announcer says Simmons shoots a three, I guess it it could be confusing now to uh, <laughs> to Sixers fans now that, that Ben has taken his one three against the Lakers. But yeah, they're, uh, again, this is... This, this is has just, almost no chance of happening because Simmons isn't going to want his shooting to be on display on the biggest stage. But imagine if he just pulled up and drained one. If his first made three came in the All-Star game, that would be pretty... Uh, re- re- really, though, I think Simmons, he ha- he has to... He should only take threes at the Wells Fargo Center because they should have the opportunity to react when he makes his first one. Don't Don't make your first one on the road. Give the crowd... When I was walking out and he took that three and you could just hear the entire... It was... Oh. Uh, I don't have I don't have a good comment on this, but the crowd will go absolutely freaking insane when he makes that first one. I think I blacked out the the press section. <laughs> we all like there's no cheering in the press box, but there is loudly reacting when Ben Simmons winds up for three for the first time in his career, like a normal non desperation shot. But yeah, it was uh, it feels like a long time ago now, but it was it was good to see him finally take one. LeBron coaxed it out of him by completely not guarding him. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, I think I tweeted at the time, like LeBron could have gotten not a three second violation, but like a five, a six, a 10 second violation pretty easily. It's it's like, it's like blocking or uh, it's like holding in the NFL. Um, y- you could have called that on almost every possession. It was, that's also I, not the best. That's not the best way to guard him. No, no, it's not. That was, uh, and it's also like not that much like if, that is what causes him to shoot. Like, it's not like that shot is any easier than when he has 10 feet of space, which he has almost every game. So it, I think that shot was more about respect and, you know, feeling the heat of, wow, he really doesn't care about guarding me. But we'll see. I don't I don't expect that to be necessarily a gateway to Simmons all of a sudden launching with regularity. Um which is weird because because Brett said the opposite. He was like, "I think he's going to start firing now," and I'm thinking, "Like, are you yeah, sure about that? I don't know." No, do I those, think they... he still shoots those garbage fadeaways, which I think yeah, oh. solve solve nothing. Oh, like yeah. that. I think part of the reason that three was so exciting was e- even if the form was screwed up, and you know, God, we've been over this a million times. It didn't look good. It at least was on balance and like a shot that you would theoretically want him taking no i think i think he was seven seven of nine against the celtics i think the only two he missed were those (laughs) as you would say garbanzo beans turnaround jumpers that weren't within a foot of 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 making it um they were yeah he's he's got a ways to go on those yeah Hmm. anything so is there anything else i mean i mean you, you got markel he had his his press conference with uh orlando you know here here's what i'll say he came out and he said two things. At, well, he said a bunch of things, one of which about coaching um, that some have interpreted as a, a slight against Brett. But he, he said two things in there. Uh, first was that 
uh, you know, he was, um, what is, uh, thinks it's the perfect opportunity for me and my family to get a fresh start and that he was more than happy to be there, which, I mean, you go back to what were reported back in November. You know, we said that the player would prefer a fresh start with a new team. And back then, fans didn't want to hear it. But it was true then. It's true now. Uh, and he, you know, he, he pretty much confirmed that in his press conference with, with the Magic. Uh, the other thing he said is um, you get a tingling in, if, in your fingers and numbness, which another thing that we reported back then. And look, does that mean that Am I saying this is physical and not mental? No, not at all. Um, you know, I've always said that there is probably a combination of factors at play. It could even be entirely psychosomatic. But what I do know is that he's been describing these symptoms, and that's what we reported. So it was nice to kind of wrap that up. Markel doesn't talk to the media all that much. I do wish him the best of luck. Like, whether it's 5% physical, 95% mental, whether it's, you know, confidence causing stress, causing psychosomatic s- symptoms, I want that dude to get back to where he's happy. I want that dude to get back to where he's enjoying playing basketball. I do think, you know, a lot of people will look at this and he hasn't been playing, so he doesn't care about basketball. I never thought that was the case. I think this is a very big part of his life. I think this has been very tough tough on him. I do think he's a good kid, and I hope he finds happiness in, in what he does. I really do. And that would be tough to see, I think, as a Sixers fan. But I think as an NBA fan, it's pretty easy to root for, even if it maybe screws up the future of your home team. So... I, truthfully, best of luck to Markel, um, and I hope that this is probably the last time I talk about him or write about him until the book. Yes, he. Uh, I, I am. I think I wrote the uh, the Markel Fultz I mean, got traded reflection story on the Athletic dot com slash Philly, which you should subscribe to if you haven't already. I. It is nice that we don't have to talk about Markel in this state anymore where no. it's just so much uncertainty and let, let let me amend my statement i hope i hope that i do get to talk about markel because i hope i get to talk about a, a a turnaround and a comeback and a redemption story i hope i hope that is a story we get to write at the athletic i really do um but continuing to describe these symptoms and this state and this uncertainty it was you know tough thing to cover tough thing to cover i think it was tough on the fans i think it was tough on markel and tough on the team i think this really is one of the situations where a fresh start is best for all involved. So, and I, I didn't check out that press conference. I only heard the snippets of uh, what he said. His quote. Hopefully, now that that's over with, uh, and just just from knowing Markel, sometimes I don't always think he uh, he is very careful with his words. And to be clear, he's still twenty years old. So, I get it uh, on that respect. Um, but but hopefully now that that introductory press conference is over, the uh, the book is closed on uh, on his Philly chapter, and you know the the rest of his career is kind of uh, removed from uh, what happened here. All right, next game. We've obviously got the All Star game this weekend. Next game, next regular season game, Miami at the Farg on the twenty first. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. See you, man. It ain't hard to tell. I excel, then prevail. The mic is contacted. I attract clientele. My mic check is life or death. Breathing the sniper's breath. I exhale the yellow smoke. I through righteous steps. Deep.